following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will all flee away till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. So we live in an age that is full of noise, busyness, there are signals, there's noise. I want to try to explain to the children among us, so you may be tempted to tune out in a few minutes, but if I can have your attention for just a second. I want to try to explain what a signal-to-noise ratio is. I'm not a sound engineer, and I'm sure there are some who would correct me what I'm about to say, but basically this is what it's like. Okay, kids, you're in your room playing with blocks or loud toys. There's a lot of noise. Maybe there's banter back and forth between brothers and sisters. It's noisy. And then comes this voice. It's time for dinner. That's the signal for you to put your toys away and come to dinner. If you don't hear that signal, you might hear it again. It's time for dinner. But you better put your toys aside and come to dinner. You see the difference between signal and noise. The noise is all the stuff out there, but then there comes a signal which is something to pay attention to. Now, adults, uh, I think it was last week that we got that emergency broadcast message thing. Remember that? How many of you, like I, turned your phone off at 2 p.m. so that you wouldn't hear that signal? Yeah, I just didn't, knew it was coming, didn't need to hear it. The emergency broadcast system. Does anybody remember what it used to be on the TV? The TV would go gray and kind of squiggly and, and beep and all that. That's the signal, okay? The rest of the communication, we could say, is kind of background noise. So the main idea in our passage today is related to that. Here's what it is, if you're taking notes. Tune to God. Tune in to what He says, because God graciously blesses those waiting for him. Turn to God, tune into what he says, because God graciously blesses the ones waiting for him. And in our passage today, we're going to see God has given a very clear signal to Judah, to his people, to the king of Judah, Hezekiah. They had ignored the signal, rejected the signal. There was all kinds of background noise, but they didn't turn to God and tune in to what he is saying. And so this whole chapter 30 is really a list of woes where God says to Judah after many warnings, woe to the obstinate children, he says in chapter 30, verse 1. Woe to Judah. This is a warning. 
And there are four things uh, I want us to consider as we look through this and think about how we turn to God or return to God, how we tune into God because He is gracious and blesses those who are waiting for Him. The first thing we'll see is the distress and the rebellion. We'll look a little bit at the historical context. Distress and rebellion in Judah. And that's where a lot of this background noise comes in. Then, through Isaiah, the invitation to repentance and rest. That's in verse 15. An invitation to repentance and rest. And kids, if you're still paying attention, that's a little bit like, it's time for dinner. That's the signal. The signal to Judah. You need to repent. You need to rest. You need to trust in me. So, distress and rebellion, invitation to repentance and rest. Then in verse 16 and 17, the center of our passage, we'll see that Judah, through Hezekiah and the political rulers, actually refuse the invitation. And so they suffer. It's a temporal judgment. It's not an eternal one, but it's a judgment nevertheless. And then finally, the fourth thing we want to look at together is the Sovereign Lord blesses the waiters. I don't mean the service people. Those who are waiting for God will be blessed by Him. The last thing we'll do is we'll take a few minutes and try to ask, so what's the same and what's different? This is an old, old story. This is ancient, actually. What on earth does it have to do with us? What difference would it make to us gathered in Jesus' name here that Isaiah said these things and that the Holy Spirit preserved them through all these years? What difference would it make? Well, let's start with the distress and the rebellion. Where are we in this grand story of God's saving purposes to seek and save a people for himself? Last time I checked, right now it's 2023. Don't ask me the date. Is it the 15th? Yeah, okay, good. Uh, October? October 15th, 2023. We need to go way back to about the year 700 B.C. before Christ. That's when this prophecy was given. That's the situation. If you're wondering, well, where is that in the Old Testament? Well, about 300 years before that is David the king. Okay, a long time before that, hundreds of years before that, is Joshua. Before that is Moses. Before that is Abraham. So, a long time after Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, now we have Hezekiah. We have Judah. And those of you who have read your Bibles know that there's actually two kingdoms now sometime before this part of isaiah was written israel was separated from judah it's important for us to remember that so these are words given to judah and not to israel per se hezekiah is the king of judah he's been warned time and time again that he should put his trust in the lord and yet in the face of this distress that's not what he does what was the distress I need to pause here a minute and say, I selected this text before the events that are occurring right now in the Middle East. So some of your minds are maybe going, is Robert trying to help us understand how we should respond to the crisis in Gaza? Let me give you a quick answer. It's got two letters. No. Pray for peace. Pray for justice. Pray that God's good purposes will be done. That's not what this is about. So don't be tempted to think, this passage explains exactly what should be done right now in the Middle East. That's not the point. But here is the point. 
In Hezekiah's day, the Assyrian Empire, and if you think about the geography, that's one advantage. We've seen maps now. We know like here's Jerusalem. Assyria would have been up here. Egypt is down here. So Assyria wanted to attack and capture, had already captured Israel, and then was working to capture Judah because then she could have Egypt. So at the time of this particular prophecy, the Assyrian, the Neo-Assyrian Empire, was attacking all the cities, all the towns, all the areas around Jerusalem. The armies were beginning to invade. It was a frightening time. Now, that's the context for this particular passage. Distress and rebellion. What is Hezekiah going to do? What are his political advisors going to do? The Neo-Assyrian Empire was a hugely powerful government. The emperor of Assyria called himself the king of the four corners of the earth. This was a massive military invasion of Judah. And so the question is, what will Hezekiah do and what will his advisors do? Those of you who know the story knows that they actually choose to ally with Egypt down here. See that? Here comes Assyria. Here's Judah. Let's get Egypt to help us defend ourselves against Assyria. Sounds like a good plan. I'm sure all the background noise in the day was saying, Judah, you don't have what it takes. This massive army is coming. Look, this is the most powerful army in the world. You don't stand a chance against them. Sennacherib was the ruler's name. You need some help. Why not go to Egypt? They've got a decent army. There's mercenaries you could buy. The advisors to Hezekiah, and it seems that Hezekiah himself and perhaps some of the ordinary people in Judah were thinking, great idea. Let's get help from Egypt. So that's the context, the situation of distress and rebellion. And in the midst of this distress and rebellion, Isaiah urges them in verse 15 to be wise and not foolish. And in a minute we'll see why it would have been very, very foolish to turn to Egypt. Verse 15, This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. In repentance and rest, is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. Let's remember, this is God speaking through Isaiah. The Holy One of Israel speaking to God's people in Judah, addressing Hezekiah and the leaders, and he says, this is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in returning or turning and rest is your salvation. I want us to think for just a minute about who it is that speaks. God identifies himself through Isaiah as the Holy One of Israel. Now God's holiness means that he is altogether transcendent and distinct from his people. He is majestic in his holiness. He's not subject to the armies of Assyria. He's not subject to the whims of Hezekiah or the advisors. He is, in a sense, gloriously above it all. 
and yet in his kindness had chosen to dwell through his presence in the very temple in Jerusalem. The Holy One of Israel speaks to Hezekiah and says, in repentance or returning and rest is your salvation. The Holy One of Israel does not want Judah looking to Egypt for help. Can you imagine why? Who was it that had rescued the people of God from Egypt a thousand years or so earlier? The Holy One of Israel had brought His people out of Egypt into the Promised Land so that they could worship Him in spirit and truth. So that, let me remind you, Isaiah, I think, might say to Hezekiah, you might have no other gods before Him so that He might dwell among you and be your Holy One, your Sovereign Lord. So when Hezekiah begins to listen to these political rulers to go join with Egypt, this is an awful offense to the Holy One of Israel. It's a personal offense to the God who had created Israel and Judah in the first place. And yet, I think if we're honest with ourselves, all that background noise, yet it starts to affect us sometimes as well. And we might forget that it is God who has saved and rescued us and begin to listen to all the noise and miss the signal. There's 30 times in Isaiah that God is called or referred to as the Holy One of Israel. And it says too that He is the Sovereign Lord. We're reminded in our passage this morning that not everyone finds the holiness of God attractive. Somehow, some people, even the rulers, the political diplomats in Judah, were turning away from the Holy One of Israel. They had no confidence in Him. They were putting their confidence in Egypt. We know now, much later, after Christ has come and the Spirit's been poured out and He has gathered His church, we have the Gospel of John to read. Would that Hezekiah and his advisors had said what Peter said. Remember the hard saying that Jesus gave after feeding the people, saying you have to eat my bread, eat my, eat my, um, eat my body and drink my blood, speaking of communion. And, and Jesus, the crowds left and Jesus uh, asked His disciples, are you also going to leave? And Peter said, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of life. Would that Hezekiah had responded that way instead of the way that he apparently did. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength, he says in verse 15. What's this repent word? Okay, kids, I need your attention again. Because that's a funny word, repent. If you didn't grow up in the church you probably don't know what repent means, and even if you did, you might have it wrong. Here's how I think it works, okay? You've probably seen your parents with their GPSs. Maybe you're on a long trip. You've got it set 300 miles down the road is the destination, but you tap your mom and dad on the shoulder and say, could we stop? I need to go to the restroom. Or I'm hungry. So you pull off the highway, and what happens to the GPS? It immediately begins to tell you, uh, go to the next slide and make a U-turn. 
go to the next street and make a U-turn. That's what repent means. It means you're on the wrong track and you need to turn around. You need to go a completely different direction. So when Isaiah says in repentance and rest is your salvation, that's what he means. Don't go to Egypt. That is the wrong way to go. Return to me. Turn around. Make a U-turn and put your faith and trust back in the living Lord, the Holy One of Israel, the Sovereign King and Lord. So, quickly on repentance. In the Bible, of course, there's the initial repentance when we, as followers of Jesus, make a big U-turn, like a once and for all U-turn, and we leave a life of sin and rebellion, and we put our faith and trust in Christ. But the Scriptures also talk about regular repentance that happens again and again as God makes us aware of our sins, and we turn from them and turn back to Him. That, I think, is, fits with what was prayed this morning by Anne, right? It's God's grace that enables us to keep saying no to these things and saying yes to godliness. That's what repentance is, and it's an ongoing experience in our lives, though it has to happen once and for all when we first believe. That'll be important when we come back to the application. So, the invitation through Isaiah, God says to Judah, to Hezekiah, to the political leaders, you need to turn around. And returning to me and resting in quietness and trust will be your salvation. Now Judah's response is in verse 16 and 17. Sadly, the people, Hezekiah himself at least initially, turned away from God. This is what they said. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. You said, we'll ride off on swift horses. In other words, we're faster than you think we are. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five, you will all flee away till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. So because Judah is going to turn away from God, at least initially here, there will be a judgment. And it's very interesting that God's judgment in Scripture always fits the crime or the offense. When Isaiah says, records what they say, no, we will flee on horses. Does anybody remember any horses in the Exodus? Kiddos even? What happened to the horses? Were they a help to Egypt? No, they chased Israel right up to the edge of the Red Sea. They went in and then the waters covered them. And it says in the song of Miriam and Moses that the horse and rider were hurled into the sea. They didn't help at all. How forgetful. How, excuse me for putting this way, how foolish of Judah to think that the horses of Egypt would stand a chance A better hope than the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel? So he says, okay, you want to run fast on those horses? The ones coming after you from Assyria will be even faster. You cannot escape the judgment. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. And if you were to go back and look in Deuteronomy, what you'd see is that God says, as long as you are with me, you will see a thousand flee from your people. There'll be one Israelite causing a thousand to flee. And don't we see that time and again in the Scriptures? Remember the story of Gideon? You don't need that many. 
Not even that many. Just 300 will be enough. And it was. Remember the story of Jericho? It's unbelievable. When the Holy One of Israel is with God's people and they trust Him, they just go around these walls a few times blowing some trumpets and everything crashes. How in the world could Hezekiah have forgotten that? So you see the evil of turning away from God to what could be seen and touched, what the background noise said would help. It was idolatry. It was Hezekiah and others having another God besides Yahweh, her covenant God. And of course, there's a pattern to the stubbornness of Judah. We see it again and again. If you were to start in Isaiah 1 and read, you'd see time and again Isaiah has warned Judah against turning away from the Lord. And in turning from the Lord, they gave up the wisdom of God for the foolishness of men. So he says, in quietness and confidence shall be your strength. But you're not going to listen. So you won't listen. Here's what the temporal judgment will be. You want to go after the horses, the ones coming after you will be faster. You want to trust in Egypt, Assyria will just make light work of that. We'll get away from the Assyrians, we'll get on fast horses and we'll flee. No, says Yahweh, those who are chasing you will have faster horses than you. So again, as I said, this judgment that comes upon God's people, it's temporal in the Old Testament. There's an eternal judgment that is, is different that comes upon people who live their lives in rebellion and never turn from the, to return to the Lord in faith. But this is a temporal judgment. It's also a judgment, I think, if you were to look at Romans 1, 18 and following, you see God pursuing the same path in this current time. You want to follow these desires of the flesh? Great, I'll just give you over to them and they will be your ruin. You want to steal things, you want to cheat, you want to lie, great, that will be the ruin of you as well. It's a principle in the Old Testament that I think we see throughout Scripture that sometimes the greatest judgment that God can give in this life is to say, you want to turn away from me? Okay. You're on your own. You might not think of that as judgment. I think Hezekiah knew it was judgment. You want to do it your way? Okay, God says. You can have it your way. It's not going to end well. We'll come back to that warning at the end of our passage. So, the situation of distress, the invitation, the refusal to turn to the Lord. And then finally, let's consider the gracious God who shows mercy and kindness to those who are waiting for him. That's in verse 18 there. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. Now, the reason I, I think it's important to recognize this was a temporal judgment on Judah is because later what we read in 2 Kings is that Hezekiah apparently did finally return and repent and the political advisors and Judah came to their senses so that though the Assyrians surrounded Judah and Jerusalem, God put 185,000 of the Assyrians to death in some sort of chaotic confusion. 
So the Lord was faithful to his word. He waited for them to repent and then was gracious to them. He wanted to show them compassion, but it was dependent upon their repentance. The Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. So that's what happened in that day. Eventually, the people did return to the Lord. And so temporarily, temporarily, in this age, this life, they did receive salvation from the Assyrians. But there's something that we should pay attention to in verse 18, I think, since we live on the other side of the cross in the resurrection. After Pentecost, we live right now as part of the family of God, part of a local church. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for Him. Now how is it that God can be a God of justice and be gracious and show compassion? Well, I think we can learn from the situation that that we've just been hearing about. What happened to the people of Judah? God gave them an invitation and they rejected it. So there was temporary judgment. But then they finally did turn around and he brought temporal blessing and salvation to them. But we live after Christ has come and has put together this picture that we just see very, very uh, dimly and faintly here. How is it, have you ever wondered, that God can be gracious to people who have turned their backs on him and still be just. Because as Matt mentioned last week, I believe it was, just as this offense against the Holy One of Israel was very serious, let's not minimize what it would be like for someone to have experienced all those blessings to say, I don't want you to be my God anymore. Thank you very much. Egypt will now be my God. The infinitely good and righteous and holy Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the faithful God, to say to Him, I'm done with you, is an infinitely heinous and evil offense. How on earth could God be just and forgive or show mercy to someone who does that? Well, the answer, of course, is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because whether we want to think about it or not, all of us have in our own way said to God at times, enough! I'd rather be God, thank you very much. I would like to pursue my own agenda, thank you so much. Things are not working out quite as fast as I wanted. You're not giving me what I think I need right now. And you know, I really would rather take out vengeance right now on this person. Uh, it's okay to hate people. Let me pursue my own agenda. All of which is saying to the Holy One of Israel, be gone. I, I'm, I would rather be God, thank you. I don't want to turn in repentance and rest and quiet. I want to figure it out on my own. That's an infinitely wicked offense. The only way to solve that problem, which has been solved, praise God, is for God Himself to take on the form of a man and to come and to live an absolutely perfect life of obedience. If Jesus had been Hezekiah, He never would have gone to Egypt. No way! So when Jesus walked the face of this earth, faced temptations we can't imagine, He never once turned aside from the Father. 
He, he was always turning to the Father. My meat and drink is to do the will of the Father, he said. And so when Satan comes to him in the garden and tempts him, at every point Jesus brings the word and says, no, it is written, and he is faithful. So what God has done is offered us salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's the only way to find salvation. Because the perfect life that I could never possibly live has already been lived for me. Jesus obeyed every command I've broken, always. And yet, he died a death that I deserved on the cross and was separated from God and rose again on the third day and ascended to the Father's right hand. And he invites, similarly to Isaiah, he invites any who will to turn and rest in him. In returning or repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. So he offers us today that salvation. It's an invitation, but you have to respond in repentance and faith. It's a wonderful way. It's the only way that God could be both just and the justifier through his gracious mercy. It's through Jesus Christ alone. So let's try to think through how could we make some applications. What difference would it make if these things uh, to try to apply these things today in our day and age. Well, as I said, this is a really old passage, but it is in God's Word, and it does still speak to us today as this Holy Spirit brings the truths to mind. But there are some things that are the same, and there are some things that are different. What would it be like, is a question just to finish with, what would it be like for us to be the kind of church that regularly, intentionally, assiduously practice repentance and rest? What would that be like? Well, first thing we need to ask is, what's the same and what's different? There are some differences. Okay, we don't live in Judah. We're not back in 700 B.C. Isaiah's not walking the streets here. What else is different? What's the same? God's the same. He hasn't changed. He's still the sovereign Lord. He's still the Holy One of God. People haven't really changed that much either. You know, we're all tempted to the invisible God. Give me something I can see. You know, Egypt, horses, fast ones. Give them to me. God, where is he? He's, I pray I don't even see him. So in some ways, we're very much like those people. We're impatient, aren't we? That's why I think Isaiah says, you know, God is going to be gracious and show mercy to those who will wait for him. We have to wait and we're impatient people. We think speed Faster is better. Stronger is better. And I think in some ways, like Hezekiah's folks in Judah, we also somehow think the problem is our limitations. Like if we could just overcome some of these limitations, we could find our own salvation. Faster internet. Better algorithm. On and on and on. That's what we need. Just like Hezekiah. Get, oh, horses from Egypt. We don't have any horses. Let's get some horses. I think we do some similar things. Let's remember what Egypt represents. When we feel squeezed and pressured by the distresses of life, are we not tempted to return to Egypt to turn away from our sovereign Lord? Again, something very different. We are not fighting against flesh and blood. We fight against the powers and principalities. Our war is a spiritual war. It's not a physical war. It's different from theirs. 
But we do have enemies. The enemies of our soul. The enemies of our faith. The world, the flesh, and the devil are always trying to get the upper hand with God's people. And so sometimes we can be foolish and stubborn. So a word to us, Christians and members of River City Baptist Church this morning. What would it look like for us to be the kind of people that regularly repent and return to the Lord in rest, in quietness, and find strength in the Lord alone? Well, we need to encourage each other. We need to be people of God's Word. We need to block out somehow the background noise and hear the signals, clear ones, coming right, right from here, as clear as can be. And, and maybe we need to help each other sometimes and say, I don't know what works for you. Sometimes it's better to talk about something out there instead of getting real personal. Hey, are, you're talking about this decision. That sounds like it might be horseplay, like Egyptian horseplay there. You sure you want to sure do that? What does the Bible say? Let's, let's look at what Scripture says. Let me, let, let's seek the Lord in that decision. And children, even, even with your parents, asking them, well, what does the Bible say about that? This is something that's going on at school. I'm not sure the other kids are doing this. The teachers are saying that. My friends are whatever. What does the Bible say about that? Because there's noise. Trust me, there's a lot of noise out there. This gives us the clear signal that we need to hear. So we are a word-centered congregation. How can we make sure the word of Christ is dwelling in us more? Whenever we gather, we turn to the word. We bring the word. We meditate upon the word. We remind one another of the word. And I was reminded this week as I was working on a different project at work that these kinds of habits, when we're not used to them, they feel awkward. It's like kind of weird at first. If you regularly have lunch with someone and you've never opened up the Bible with them or mentioned the Bible, the first time it's going to feel a little weird. I know that. You've got to just push through it, you know? Pretty soon it won't feel weird. We need to help each other think through also, what does repentance look like? If we're going to be the kind of people that are regularly repenting and resting, we need to kind of dig down into what repentance looks like. So when we make bad choices... We do the wrong thing, we think the wrong thing, we say the wrong thing, we have the wrong attitude. It, I think it's a great step for us just to say, I'm repenting of being angry. I'm sorry that I was angry. That's a great first step. Love it. But what if, as God's people, we dug a little bit deeper and said, Let, let's talk about why it was that you were angry. Just ask the question, was there something you were thinking that was inaccurate about God or about people? Were you in some sense trying to pull God off the throne so that you could decide exactly what your life was going to be like today before that person did that to you, before they cut you off in traffic? That wasn't part of your plan. Just digging a little deeper. Maybe we have thoughts that need correcting by God's word. Or, or maybe it's, it's our desires. You know, we desire something, but it just doesn't fit here. Uh, Titus 2 says, the grace of God's appeared. It tells us, it teaches us and trains us to say no to ungodly desires. And that's not just lust and sexual desire, to be clear. It's all kinds of things that we desire that are not part of God's purpose for us, that are not consistent with his word. We could help each other repent, not just of the act, but of that very desire, of that very thought, or the commitments we make. You know, why do we get angry 
Is it because of that, you know, wrong thoughts? Is it wrong desires? Could it also be commitments that we have that we're unwilling to release, even though the Lord may want us to release them? Intentions, commitments, I don't mean things that you actually are obligated to do, but you've decided without even consulting the Lord, and then somebody stopped that from happening, and you're really angry about that. There's a lot more going on there than just your anger. You see what I'm saying? So if we're going to be the kind of church that is regularly repenting and resting in the Lord, we can probe a little bit more. One more thing, and then I have a word for any who may not be Christians among us uh, here today. We do all this because God is gracious and kind to us. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That last verse is so key. The invitation comes, it's refused, but then God does not give up. It says that he longs to be gracious. He waits to be gracious. And maybe it would help us in helping each other to become more like Christ, to remind each other, the Lord is so ready for you to repent. He's just waiting. He's longing for you to repent. Let's do that right now. Isn't that what this verse is saying? He's just waiting for you to say, I was wrong. Forgive me, God. Help me live differently. Let me put to death these thoughts, desires, and intentions that are not yours. Isn't that what it says? He's just waiting for that so that we can preach the gospel to one another. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. We have sung that together. So let's be that kind of a church that is quick to uh, repent and rest and return to the Lord. Because in in a sense, whenever we are involved in sin or disobedience, it's because we have turned away from the Lord. And we need to turn back to him and bring him our sin so that he can forgive it. A word also to some of you, any of you, maybe there are people here that are not yet followers of Jesus. Maybe you've not yet turned to God in Christ. You're here because you're curious about the Bible. I want you to know you are welcome. I attended church for, I don't know, I'm embarrassed to admit how many years before I finally repented and believed. I hope you don't (laughs) attend that long, but you are welcome here. This is a good place to come and learn about what it means to follow Christ and read and apply His Word. We've opened the Bible together today. We've sung songs. If you have your service guide, there's really good truths in the songs, in the prayers that have been prayed, the scriptures that we've read. I really think the signal's pretty clear. Unless you had some God-canceling headphones on for the last hour or so, the signal should have gotten through, right? I mean, it's there. Uh, Please... Please don't put those headphones on. And if you know you wear them sometimes, would you throw them away? Let me say it again. In repentance and rest is your salvation. Christ has come to set you free from the law of sin and death. So you never have to go back to Egypt. You'll be free from your greatest enemy, sin and death. And you'll be part of a fellowship of believers in the local church who will help you to run the race to the very end so that you can persevere. You only have one hope. Again, back to our text. Whatever those people thought, (laughs) they had one hope and it was the Holy One of Israel. And the same is true today. Plans to save yourself will never work. Self-salvation, self-reliance is death, I guarantee you. 
Jesus Christ alone satisfies God's justice and love. He alone shows the mercy to all who confess sin and rebellion and then quietly rest. In quietness and trust is your strength, says the prophet. Trust is another way of saying faith. Belief, putting all your hope in the Lord Jesus. When the Holy Spirit makes you turn to Christ, you are also united by Christ, with Christ by faith and with part of his people. And then you begin the gloriously hard but wonderfully joyful work of repenting and resting, repenting and resting, repenting and resting as we wait for that day when we will never repent again. When Jesus splits the skies to bring us home, we won't be repenting ever again. All of our sin will lie dead at our feet. And we will enjoy His presence forever. And we will gladly have Him rule over all our desires and thoughts and intentions. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Again, I pray, Heavenly Father, O great God, of highest heaven, holy, holy, holy God, would you take your word and apply it to our hearts and lives? Would you make those of us who know you more like Jesus as we love one another in Christ? And would you work and grant repentance and faith to any here who have yet to turn to you in trust? You are worthy of our praise. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.